Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Motormouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. On this Gearing Up show, we're joined by Matthew Carter, the man who accidentally became the boss of an F1 team. Well, there's a bit more to it than that uh, for the man that comes from the finance world, ending up overseeing the running of the Lotus Renault F1 team. He's a proven investor and businessman who has turned around struggling companies and made them millions. He's here to tell us just how he did it for the F1 team and the mountain he had to climb whilst doing it. Welcome to the latest episode of the Motormouth podcast and the very latest in our Gearing Up series where we shine a light on those within motorsport we think should have your attention. Before I introduce today's guest, however, I have to head over, as always, to Essex, which according to the Essex Herald is not only the UK's wealthiest county, but would qualify as the world's 53rd largest economy. Forbes magazine has also stated that the county's tax revenue alone would be sufficient to pay off the national debts of several emerging economies. However, the economic state of Essex is not what's important today. Today, it is far more important that I introduce the effervescent, charming and vibrant ray of sunshine. Mr. Harry Benjamin, how are you? Thank you, uh, Mr. Tim Sylvie. Wow. You know what? I think uh, you should actually go and create your own spin-off podcast just talking about Essex because I've lived here 23 years. You know way more than me. Um, it's a fascinating county, you know. There's a lot going on. Essex has got a lot going for it. It really, I didn't even know we had a, an, an Essex Herald. That's new to me. Um, I knew about West Essex life, but I didn't know about the Essex Herald. Uh, anyway, uh, regardless of that, I am doing well, thank you. Um, yeah, just sort of getting on with life as, as much as you can, really, in this new... Everyone keeps saying new normal, and I, I hate that. I don't yeah. like it. I want to go back to the old the old normal. I don't like this new normal. It's, I, don't know if what I'm, I don't know if I'm doing things right or wrong, and when I do things, it feels like I shouldn't be doing them. It's all very confusing. I know, it's getting boring now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but uh, shall I introduce today's guest? Yeah, let's do it. So we've had a few interesting characters in our Gearing Up series to date, and today has got to be one of the best. Matthew Carter is a name that most F1 fans will remember. He was the chief executive of the Lotus F1 team after the departure of Eric Boulier to McLaren. He was right at the centre of the team's ups and downs between 2013 and 2016 after Bridgehouse Capital's owner bought a stake in the team before eventually overseeing the sale of it to Renault. Let's bring in the man himself, Matthew Carter. Welcome to this Gearing Up edition of the Motormouth podcast. Hi, how are you two? Very well, thank you. Yeah, not too bad. Matthew, you're in, uh, you're in Canada at the moment, aren't you? So, so what's uh, life like out there and, and what's it been like this last, well, this year really, this nightmare of a year? Yeah, yeah, no, I, live in, uh, I live in Montreal and um, <clears throat> yeah, it's been, uh, it's been strange. It's been strange here as, as there. I don't think the lockdown was quite as strictly enforced here. Um, it was very much advised only to go out for certain things. But uh, yeah, I guess it's the same. It's, it's very similar all over the world. It's, uh, 
certainly strange times. And uh, for someone who's used to traveling and, and boarding so many flights, it's uh, it brings you down to earth slightly. Well, take us back, though, um, to, to your early life. That's what we like to do in the, these gearing up episodes, uh, especially with with people that um, uh, fans and, and particularly with most fans, you might not necessarily know that much about you just yet, but you've had such a prominent role within within motorsport and within Formula One. But before we get to that, let's take it back to sort of the start and early life. You know, what was home life? Did you grow up in the UK? And, uh, you know, what were, were there signs early on of what was to come? Uh, short answer is no, there weren't. I, uh, <laughs> I grew up in, uh, in Cheshire. Um, parents, brother and sister. Um, I then followed the usual path, went to university in Bradford and uh, studied um, management, uh, management consultancy, Um, and then sort of drifted off down my own path of, uh, I actually went off and worked for myself and I was buying and selling companies myself from uh, from pretty much as soon as I came out of university. Um, how, how, how does one go about buying a company straight out of uni? I mean, I know you've got a bit of grounding with, um, you know, the, the, the bits and pieces you'll learn at university, but then to take that into practice and actually go out and buy a business for the first time, how on earth do you do that? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. I actually did a couple of placements when I was at university. So there were two six-month placements involved within the course. And uh, on, on one of those, I got a good grounding of um, well, my first introduction to um, insolvency practitioners and um, the way that overdrafts work and the way that directors' guarantees can get called into play by banks, et cetera, et cetera. So when I left, I maintained contact with an insolvency practitioner and he actually put me in touch with a guy who was looking to sell his company um, fairly cheap just because he wanted he wanted out because he um, he'd given some director's guarantees and he, he didn't really understand the the ways of the world and how a limited uh, a limited company works in the UK and uh, so I went in there fairly cheap turned the company around made myself some money and uh, and then used that money to to continue doing that and uh, I worked for myself uh, maybe five or six years before coming into contact with. Uh, a guy called Andy Ruin, who, as you as you rightly said at the, at the top of the show, there he runs a company or ran a company called Bridgehouse Capital, and he effectively asked me to go and work for him to do what I was doing, but uh, in essence using his bigger pot of cash than than mine. So, so you would so, effectively go out and uh, and look for different opportunities within different businesses in certain sectors, and then try and turn them around for a profit. Exactly. So that, that's exactly what I was doing when I when I joined Andy at Bridgehouse. It was more so. Bridgehouse is a is a venture capital firm, and it's but it's privately owned, so it's it's his cash essentially. Um, and he would go out and and often would buy a portfolio of companies, and within that portfolio, I'd be one black sheep, if you like, or one that was uh, that, that needed a little bit more work. And I was his kind of go to to go into that company and. Uh, restructure it, sometimes liquidate assets, maybe look for somebody else to buy it out or, or whatever. And, um, and I did that for him for, crikey, 10, 12 years um, on and off. And, um, and during that time, uh, so at this point, no interest whatsoever in motorsports, to be perfectly honest. My father worked for Imperial Tobacco, so I had a picture of Senna in his black lotus, bizarrely, how things moved on yeah. um, on my wall when I was a kid, but that was just because <laughs> because my father worked for for the JPS Tobacco Company. Um, so yeah, so I worked for Andy for a number of years, and um, he and one of his partners, a guy called Gerard Lopez, um, are both very keen. Um, I guess you would call them gentleman drivers, but maybe a little bit more than that. So they did some sort of twelve-hour endurance races and things like that, and at some point. Uh, well, wasn't at some point. It was after Renault had their slight mishap in Singapore, where um, Nelson yes. Piquet Jr. was asked to deliberately crash. I, rem- I remember that so well because I-, I was there working with um, Renault, and um, I was I was working with um, ING Bank, who at the time were yes. the, the very um, expensive title sponsor of the team and um i was there in my my lovely white trousers and my orange ing polo shirt and we were there watching this unbelievable crash unfold um so was was that your first sort of introduction this is where it all started to happen so not at all so so basically what happened so at this stage i'm still working for bridge house on uh crikey logistics companies and baby food and fruit juice and (laughs) hotels and all sorts of weird and wonderful things and um so 
so when the crash happened, obviously Renault were, was slightly disgraced. Um, or Flavio certainly was, and, yes. and some of the senior senior members of the of the team. So Renault effectively wanted out of F1, or certainly the, from the team side, they were going to continue to supply engines, but they wanted to to be out of the team side. Gerard, in some way, shape, or form, had formed some sort of a, a, a working relationship, or at least a knowledgeable relationship with Bernie, and Bernie advised Renault that there could potentially be a fit there. So. I think 2009, 2010, they walked in and and picked up the team. Well, we can refer to it as Team Endstone, if you like. So it was Renault at the time. They walked in there and they picked it up um, for a reasonably decent price um, and then set about trying to turn the thing around. So they did a deal with Lotus Cars um, to be their title sponsor. So it was never a Lotus, it was never anything to do with Lotus. Lotus were simply a, a sponsor of the team. So they did a deal with Lotus. They decided to go for the black and gold livery, um, signed, uh, moved things on. And then towards the end of 2012, 2013, they had Kimi and uh, Roman and they were winning races. They yeah. were, they were performing very, very well. Um, what was going on in the background, which is, I guess, is kind of a little bit more of my forte, was that they were they were running on Renault money without actually having Renault money, if you like. So yeah. all the team were still continuing to do everything that they'd always done in the past. And, um, and effectively, we get to the end of the 2013 season, or drawing towards the end of the 2013 season. They were... So this was the last season before the hybrid engines. Uh, Renault was probably the the best engine it was certainly it was powering the red bulls and had powered the red bulls to their multiple world championships and lotus were pretty much considered to be the second quickest car on the grid um as i said kimmy was winning races and uh, and everything was going reasonably well but behind the scenes they were losing a fortune they were losing money hand over fist and the two Actually, owners... just to cut in there on on that i heard a rumor and i don't know if this is true or not about kimmy and his contract uh, especially early on or i'm not sure if it was his first or second year but something to do with uh, he got bo- uh, an extra however many thousand for every point he scored and obviously exactly. he finished what second or, or no third in the championship at one point well, that's, is that's, that true it's exactly what happened yeah oh god so kimmy so i so i mean forward forward six months or so and i'm having to deal with kimmy and his manager a guy called steve robertson because they had a winding up petition for the team so i was trying to negotiate and i negotiated he was owed 16 million at the time oh my god and i negotiated Ooh. that we would pay them we paid them nine um in a full and final settlement and kimmy never ever spoke to me since then he would he would he would deliberately look the other way in the paddock and he would tell people that i me personally owed him seven million euros or whatever however much you would out to but yeah so so what kimmy actually did so kimmy was rallying at the time he mm. was sort of sort of thinking of coming back into into racing and he, he was talking to a few teams and gerard agreed a deal with him whereby he would get a basic salary and then he was getting fifty thousand euros per point as a bonus wow and the first race, so 2012, the first race he won in Australia, so that's 25 points, so it was yeah. half a million. Oh my God. The second race, he came second, um, getting 18 <laughs> points. So by the end of that first month, he was owed almost a million euros. And, um, and effectively, that's where we got to. So when we get towards the end of 2013, the team are struggling financially. Um, and it's very public. They failed to meet uh, staff salaries a couple of times. They didn't pay Kimmy. And he went very public with that, if you remember. He did a press conference where he said he hadn't been paid a euro for the season. Mm. And then with about three races to go, with the team sitting firmly in second in the championship behind Red Bull, he developed a mysterious back problem, if you remember, and Mm. um, disappeared off, um, said he couldn't race the last three races of the season and went and signed a contract with Ferrari, who at that time were third in the world championship. And consequently overtook Lotus to, to get a huge amount more, more championship money for the next season. Um, so Kimmy walked away. There's a, there's a few twists and turns in this 2013 season already. Um, they signed a deal, or the guys at Lotus agreed a deal to get Nico Hulkenberg to come in and race the, the final two races of the season. Hulkenberg was driving at Sauber at the time, and the reason they could pull him from Sauber was because he also hadn't been paid. So Sauber were in breach of his contract. So Lotus were going to bring Hulkenberg over and he was going to race the last two seasons. He came to Enstone, he signed a pre-agreement, he had a seat fit. Um, and then Sauber, who were running Ferrari engines at the time, 
mysteriously managed to find the money. Oh. Who knows where? Oh, Obviously, he was from? Italian, but they managed <laughs> to find the money to pay his contract up. So therefore, they were no longer in breach, and he couldn't come and race. Oh my God! You you got so to latest... love you've got to love the politics of Formula One. No uh, other yeah. sport does I'm, it. I'm like not this. even involved yet. This is all prior to him becoming <laughs> oh involved. I mean, um, oh, so then man. he ran around like like lunatics, and they managed to get Heike Kovalainen to come in and do those last two races, mm. if you remember. And it was all a bit of a disaster. And mm. he was he'd been out of the sport for a while. And whilst he was fairly quick, he could be fairly quick. He was very inconsistent. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they ended up dropping from from second in the championship down to fourth which, as I'm sure you're aware, has huge consequences on the money you get from, from uh, FOM the following year. Um, and the guys called me in and they said, look, you know, you go and look at these businesses that are struggling. Well, this one here is, is, is hemorrhaging cash. Can you go and look at it? So I remember having the conversation. I said to them, look, I, I don't know anything about Formula One, but I'll go in there and I'll treat it like a business. So, I mean, it's got an accounts department, it's got a manufacturing department, it's got an HR department, it's got a, you know, I'll treat it like I would any other business and we'll see where we go. So I go in there in, uh, so it was just after the season had finished, so it must have been November 2013, and um, prepared my normal uh, report for them to say, this is what I think you should do, which included reducing the staff from, at the time it was 600 they had 600 employees. So it was reducing the staff down to 500 and a few cuts and, and things that we could do along the way and uh, presented it to them. And they said, okay, we like the idea of this. Will you, we're going to sack the CEO. He was a guy called Patrick Louis at the time. We're going to sack the CEO tomorrow. We'd like you to take over as CEO. Um, I initially said no, because at the time I was working for Bridge House and I, uh, I just enjoyed working for Bridge House. I never worked for the companies themselves. I was kind of a consultant dipping in, dipping out. And they said, look, this is a bigger deal. So we want you there full time. So I initially said no. Then one of them, this was in the boardroom at Enstone. And one of them pulled me outside and said, you realize what you're, what you're saying here? You know, we're offering you the, the role of CEO of an F1 team. So I said, yeah, I agree. So I'll go back in and I say, yeah, okay, I'll do it. But, you know, I, I don't know anything about the racing side. So they said, that's fine. We've got Eric Boulier is, is our um, team principal. He'll run the race side, you run the business side. So I said, okay, on those conditions, I'm, I'm fine to do that. So very, very early on, within the first, uh, the, maybe the first week, I got all the staff together in the race bays in Enstone. So, so all 600 staff, um, they put me on a little a plinth so that they could see me. <laughs> and I basically said to them, um, a speech which I've done at a lot of companies down the line, but, uh, you know, to say, look, you know, we, you're all aware that we're in difficulty. You know, we're here to help. Um, I'm here to help. I'm here to make sure the business succeeds and we succeed as a, as a company and a team. But we're going to have to make some cuts. So if any of you are nearing retirement age, if any of you have got potential job offers elsewhere or whatever, then, uh, you know, my door's open, come see me and we'll start going through this painful process. But, you know, once that's done, then we can, we can move forward. So I started off down that route. So we're probably 10 days into this not by now. And uh, Eric comes into my office and says that he's accepted the job at McLaren and explains it to me as a, as a, as a football player going to Manchester United. It was his dream job and he couldn't turn it down. And um, whilst he was looking forward to working with me, you know, he had to take it. So I said, okay. So, so he left. So I only worked with Eric for, as I say, 10 days, 11 days. So he disappeared and I picked the phone up to the two owners and said, we've got a slight problem. Eric's, Eric's left. So they said, yeah, okay, we're going to send you over a list of potential replacements. So they sent this list of replacements over and it was, you know, the usual suspects you can imagine. And, um, and I, well, that's not going into details, but the, the wages that they were requiring was astronomical. And I had literally just come out of a meeting with a guy who was paid 25 grand a year and, you know, I was having to lay him off. So I ring back the owners and I say, look, you know, I can't, I can't do this. It doesn't, it doesn't sit well with me. And I remember they basically said, well, you need to deal with it. So I called the senior management in. There's like I said, there's a guy who's still at Renault called Alan Permain, who is effectively, I think his title is sporting director. He's the one that, he's the one that we had the conversation with Kimmy mm -hmm. when Kimmy told him to, you know, leave me alone. I know what I'm yeah, doing. Yeah, That's yeah. Alan. So with all the senior management sit around and Alan Permain turns on to me and he says, look, I've pretty much got us covered at the races, you know, from a sporting side, you know, from a strategy side, from a, from a pit stops, from, a, you know, dealing with the FIA, dealing with all the technical regulations. I got that covered. So I said, okay, so what does Eric do? So he said, well, we need someone there that can deal with the media because I haven't got time. 
someone that can deal with the sponsors, and more importantly not than, than anything else, is available to go to the, his exact words, the stupid meetings that Bernie calls during the race weekend that would take someone who's working on the, you know, on, on track, would take them away from proceedings for an hour or so. So they all sat around the table and they basically pointed at me and they said, you can do it. I was like, well, hang on. And they were like, you know, we've not known you long, but obviously, you know, you can, you can, you can hold court in front of sponsors. You, we're sure you can, you can be, you know, articulate enough in front of the, the FIA and, and, and Bernie. So why don't you do it? So I called back the owners and I said, this is our plan. And they said, okay, we'll see how you go. So <laughs> that is scope so, creep of the, the most horrible kind. You know, you, you sign up to be a CEO, which is one thing, but taking on the effectively the team principal part opens up a whole different ball game. I mean, w- did you have any idea what was to come in terms of media yeah. attention? You know, you, I was yeah. watching a YouTube video with you um, being interviewed in the pit lane by Coulthard and Susie Perry. Uh, Susie, uh, yeah, um, yeah, Susie Perry. Is it Susie yeah. Perry? Oh, back in the BBC days. Yeah, yeah, Susie yeah. Perry. And um, and you're being interviewed by them, and they're probing, you know, about finances and all sorts of things. And and you're sort of there trying to bat them off. I'm thinking, you know, is he media trained? <laughs> Was he expecting this? How how were you feeling on the inside, honestly, that like when you were going through all that sort of stuff? It's, uh, the, the business side of it, no problem at all. I'd run businesses that were bigger and smaller and whatever. That that was fine. It was the, as you say, it's the public. The public notion of it all, you know, the fact that you are, if you, if you run it backwards a little bit and you, and, you, and you take it as a company, you're a company competing against nine other companies doing the same thing. But not only that, you're very publicly um, graded mm. every two weeks on how you're getting on. You know, the, the, there's nowhere to hide. It's not, you know, you can't just have a few off weeks or off months or whatever and come up with a new product. It's, it's very, very public. So pressure-wise, it was, it was huge. Um, Within two, three weeks, I was up. So they still have it now. There's a strategy group in Formula One, which is the top six teams, um, the FIA and, and FOM. So within, I think within two, two and a half weeks, I was at Biggin Hill, sitting around this huge table with Bernie at one end, John Todd at the other, with Christian and Toto and um, Stefano at the time, Claire, um, because it's the top six teams, or it's the top five teams, and, and then Williams, Williams the yeah, 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 bizarrely. <laughs> and did, but did, um, are they are they looking at you like who is this guy with no F one experience? What's I he think doing? So, here? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think they they'd kind of um, Lotus at the time were kind of seen a bit like that. You know, we'd we'd they'd punched above their weight in twenty thirteen, and yeah. Bernie pulled me to one side very early on, and. Um, and we had a conversation and he obviously got on reasonably well with me. He was, he was happy that there was someone running the team that was going to... See, Bernie's a very interesting character and um, I spoke to him yesterday, actually. Um, he, um, he doesn't like anything to tarnish Formula One in any way, shape or form or his, his view of what he's built up in Formula One. So rumours of a team that's not paying wages, not paying drivers, it just grates on him. So, you know, he, wants, he was pleased that someone had come in that was that was hopefully gonna gonna stop all those those horrible rumors um do you think your um your sort of almost lack of f1 knowledge from from the sporting side of things helped you in a way for dealing with what was to come sort of almost a sort of a blissful ignorance well so what so what happened so so we do i do a few meetings we do the testing at hareth um which was an absolute disaster. So if you remember, this was the start of hybrid engines. We had the Renault. It just didn't work. Yeah. So, was, the one, um, was, it, was your first car the one with the, the sort of twin, the tusk yes. nose? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which was sold to me in our confidential meetings as this was, the, this was genius. This was going to be the thing that was oh, going to set us aside. This was going to be our double diffuser. This was, yeah. was going to take us forward. And when we got to the first test and nobody else had it, Honestly, the guys, the guys in the technical department, are like yes, this is it. World this. champions. We need to, we need to really drive forward at the start of the season before everyone else picks up on it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we did, we did testing at Hareth, but the Renault engine was just shocking. You know, if you remember, even in the Red Bull, Vettel couldn't. He just, they, we couldn't do a lap. We couldn't get the engine to to complete more than a lap. It was, it was horrible. And then we go to. So my first ever race that I attended first ever F1 race is Melbourne 2014 and I'm sitting on the pit wall. I'm on the grid before the start. I'm on the pit wall. Um, That's my first experience. So we go and um, with with, some optimism, 
we I don't know if you know that. Well, I'm I'm sure you do, Tim. I'm 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 not sure if you do, Harry. But the the paddock is set up in the order that you finished, and the garages are set up in the order that you finished the season before in the in the championship. So, um, so Mercedes is always is either first or last, depending on the the layout of the circuit. So it's it the idea is it gives them a little bit of. Um, a little bit of an advantage when it comes to pit stops but it also so your hospitality sits behind the garage in the paddock so you're directly lined up so we were so the team were absolutely ecstatic because we'd finished fourth and we were ahead of mclaren so every morning ron dennis had to walk past our hospitality (laughs) hospitality so everyone's sitting outside having their coffee and ron's walking past and the team loved that they loved the fact (laughs) that we were up there so we go to australia and bear in mind we'd won it two years before we'd been a very very successful car we qualified 21st and 22nd. Yeah, it didn't go. Out of 22 cars. I've, um, I'm there with the guys from Microsoft who I was trying to convince to increase their sponsorship in the team. And um, I was at dinner on the Saturday evening with the guys from Microsoft. And I was obviously fairly depressed about the whole situation. And I'm talking to this guy from Microsoft, this guy called Christian. Um, and he says, uh, he says, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, normally, I'd, if it was a normal business, you know, I'd get in early tomorrow. I'd like try and really pump up the guys. I'd try and really G them up and do some sort of a rousing speech. And he said, well, do that. Do, do what you would normally do. And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. So I'm, I'm texting with the guys who are picking me up in the morning and they were due to pick me up at 10.30, let's say, and take me to the circuit. And he says, look, I'm going in early. I've got a group of VIPs. We're going in on a minibus. We're leaving the hotel at nine. So I said, okay, I'll jump on with you. So his VIPs loved it because they had, they had a team principal sitting on the front of the, of the minibus. So they take me into the circuit. Not only do they drop me at the front entrance as opposed to the paddock entrance, <laughs> so they drop me there. I have no idea where I am. I've never been to this before. Every, every time I've been into that circuit, I've been with someone else who's showing me around. So they dropped me off at the front entrance. So I try and get the attention with 100,000 fans or more uh, in full team kit, full, you know, black and gold team kit with my pass <laughs> on my neck. So I try and find someone. I find a steward eventually. And she comes over and she looks at my, at my pass and it obviously says grid, pit wall, <laughs> paddock on it. And she says, what are you doing here? I said, it's oh, a long story. Can you just get me to the paddock? So she puts me in a little golf buggy and I was completely at the other side of the circuit. So she drives me on this golf buggy all the way through to the paddock, get to the paddock, the entrance to the paddock. Paddock's completely empty. There's nobody in there at all. This is strange. So, you know, you beep into the paddock. So, yeah. you beep, beep. so I beep in, walk into the paddock. There's nobody in the paddock at all. The whole place is deserted. So I walk, walk down to our hospitality. I go in. I see the waitress. She brings me a cup of coffee out. I'm sitting there on the front. I'm on my phone, sort of texting people to find out where they are. <laughs> and there's a guy who used to work for Bernie called Pasquale, who is like the, yeah, Tim's not doing it. He's yeah, like the I've dealt with police, Pasquale. the enforcer of all rules and regulations. <laughs> and also Bernie's right-hand man to a large extent. And uh, he comes over to me and he, he, he walks up and he says, oh, it's Matthew, isn't it? And I said, yeah. He said, oh, we haven't met you. I'm Pasquale. Nice to meet you. I said, yeah, good to meet you. And he said, um, it's your first race, isn't it? And I said, yeah. And he said, you realise that you've just broken the curfew for your team? Oh, God. I said, what? And he said, there's a curfew. You're not supposed to, you know, no one from the, no one from the teams are supposed to come into the, into the paddock before a certain time. That's why it's empty. <laughs> I was like, okay, what does that mean? And he said, well, you're allowed to break it. I think it's twice. And then you start to get um, penalty points and positions docked. And- this is amazing. So my rousing idea of going in and, and giving the team, team a, um, a huge <laughs> kick up the backside turned into an absolute disaster. And uh, oh, the no. good news, I mean, it, it is a good story, you know, and it's 100% true, but the good news is we had actually already broken the curfew because the guys had had to had been in the garage that, the, the night before anyway, but I didn't know that. You must and, have felt um, like, like the, the new boy at school or something. Like, wh- yeah, what, for sure. It, it, you know, with all that business experience behind you, it, you must have felt like... This is not fun. I'm not enjoying this. Or, or oh, it, gets, it, it gets worse. This oh, is, no. this, this is my Excellent. first race. Okay, this is the first race, and I. Um, so we go. We're on the. I'm on the pit wall, and uh, I'm literally sitting there. I've got my microphone up. So you the, the, you see them with their microphones around the mm. headphones. I've got it up in the eye. I have no intention of speaking to anyone. I'm just sitting there <laughs> listening to everything. Exactly, <laughs> listening to what's going on to try and to try and see where we are. And something happened to Roman's car during the race. And we were we were running around in I don't know fourteenth or fifteenth or something like that. And there's um, there's eight guys sit on the, at the time at, at the pit wall. There was eight guys sitting along, and I was at the far right hand side. And Alan Pemain, who I was talking to you about before, who's the sporting director, is at the far left hand side. 
So we're getting towards the end of the race and I suddenly hear through my microphones, what do you think, Matthew? And I'm like, he must be talking to somebody else. He's obviously not talking to me. And, um, and then I sort of look, lean back. I remember it like it was yesterday. I lean back. So I've got these, these seven other guys' backs. I lean back and he leans back and he points to the microphone and, and he's, they've already told me on the panel in front there's a button I can press to speak to people. So I put the microphone down and press the button and he says... Um, what do you think? We need, to re- we need to decide whether or not to retire Roman to protect his engine and his gearbox. So I said, okay, what's, what's the issue? So he said, well, he's running around in whatever it was, 14th. Um, ideally, we'd like to retire him to protect the, the engine components. But, you know, if there's an accident in front, if there's, you know, if, yeah. if something happens, if a few other people retire, because it was, it, was, it was a war of attrition that first year of, yeah. of hybrid. If something happens, you know, we could get in the points and that could be huge for us this year. So I was like, shit. So I said, uh, okay, um, what uh, what do you think? <laughs> so batted, batted we back. think we think we should retire. <laughs> okay, said, okay, yeah, I, I concur. Sounds like so a we, good idea. Yeah, we, <laughs> we retired the car, and you know it was fine. No, no, nothing happened ahead, and he wouldn't have got any points. But I go over to Alan afterwards, and I was like, "What the hell was that all about? What are you doing, putting me on the spot?" And he said, "Look." He said, the way that we have things set up at the moment is that we will defer to the most senior person on the pit wall when it comes to something like a retirement because it doesn't look good for sponsors. It doesn't look good for anything. So we will always defer. If you want to change that, then so be it. But so I was like, no, okay, we'll keep it. But I remember leaving Melbourne and I spent the whole flight back and probably the next two, three weeks just emerging myself in F1, everything that I could. I went to every technical meeting that the team were having, meetings where they were like, well, why are you here? And we're talking about a front wing adjustment that we needed to do. And I was like, yeah, I want to come to everything. So I just emerged myself in everything to the extent that, you know, um, however long it was, two years later or a year and a half later, I was fairly knowledgeable on everything that was going in and could make fairly uh, reasonable calls strategically or whatever. But so did, yeah, that first race was, was do, scary. Do you think you then... Um, turn the tide a bit you know because i know you're you're still in touch with people like toto and, and others who are still in the sport after that initial kind of who is this guy who does he think he is coming in thinking he can run an f1 team do you think there came a, a sort of point where everyone was like okay fair dues you know he's done his homework he's learning he he gets it i think so yeah i think they also um I mean, F1 teams are very, very different these days, as, as you know. You know, team principal as it used to be is no longer team principal. You know, you have a, a CEO, you have a business person. They're, they're such big organizations that you need someone that understands the business side as well as the sporting side or whatever, or even can just focus on the business side. So, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was, it was hard those first few months or whatever, but, you know, you... Again, it's such a traveling circus. You see these people every two weeks. You know, I did, you know, the team principal's press conference, you know, and you're 10 minutes before and 10 minutes after, you know, they realize that you're not a bumbling idiot that doesn't know what you're talking about completely, you know, that he's, that you're reasonably switched on and, you know, you're a fairly, I like to think a fairly pleasant guy that they could, uh, they could come and have a coffee with and have a chat. But, um, but even then, did you, did you, when you were doing those press conferences, did you ever get a question from, I don't know, you know, someone technical from Autosport that sort of put you on the spot and you thought, I, I just don't know the answer to that question? Well, we, I had a bit of media training. I think all the team principals do. And you're very much told to, stick to the narrative and um you know if someone asks you something that doesn't fit with what you're trying to get across you just you know you as you said <laughs> when i was being interviewed by david Coulthard, you know you just circumnavigate slightly you yeah. uh, you play you play a very straight bat um i did get caught off guard in the silverstone presser um by a guy from the times but that was because i said that they were being very negative in the stories that they wrote so at the time, again, again, it's all very public, but our financial, we, we solved our financial issues, if you like. So 2013, the team lost 64 million sterling um, on just over 120 turnover. So that gives you an idea of the wastage that was going on there. Yeah. 2014, we lost about 5 million just over. So I took it from 64 to 5. 2015, we broke even. 2016, we sold back to Renault. So there was, the, the path was exactly what I was supposed to do. But when Renault came in to talk, to talk to us, they spent probably six months doing their due diligence. During, at some point during that process, the two owners turned around and said, well, we're not going to continue to fund this. You know, if, if Renault want to buy it, then they need to fund it. So um, we got to this impasse where Renault were very, very slow in forwarding funds and 
lots of suppliers were getting upset and uh, we had some crazy stories in 2015 of arriving in Hungary and not having any tires because I hadn't paid Pirelli. <laughs> we arrived in Mexico and I, I couldn't afford, to, I could either afford to pay the tires or the hospitality. So I didn't pay the hospitality. So the journalists, sadly, there was lots of very, very public pictures of our hospitality with almost like cordoned off tape across it and the mechanics sitting at the back of the garage eating packs of crisps. Wow. Um, so we went through this whole period of... Um, of of kind of getting the ship righted, then the then the sail process to Renault, which was which was tedious and and, and long at the time. But uh, this, this, but no, during all of it, I think the other team principals were great. Honestly, I yeah. um, I've got a lot of time for all of them. I think they're um, well, except Ferrari. Never had any. As soon as Stefano left, zero contact. You know, they just didn't. They they don't seem to mingle in the same. Yeah, yeah. And Christian and Toto absolutely fine, but the Ferrari team principals never. Well, Ferrari have got their own problems to solve at the moment, haven't they? But um, what, looking back at your time as as effectively team principal, what were, what were your what was your main highlight, and then the absolute worst point where you thought, "Oh my god, I want to." Was there a point where you just wanted to chuck in the towel? The the, the absolute low light was probably the the qualifying in Australia. Uh, there was a few times when, so as you remember at the time, we we took pasta as well. Um, oh yes, pasta of course. Um, Good old pastor, and we t- we took him. You know, let's be honest about it. We took him because he brought a big chunk of cash with him, um, and we took him from. So we this again prior to my time, but they spent an awful lot of time convincing him to come from Williams to Lotus, um, because Williams were terrible and Lotus were great. So at the time, Williams had finished really, really dismally in 2013, and Lotus had been, as as we previously said, second fastest. Fast forward to 2014. Williams have got a Mercedes engine, we've got a Renault engine, and, you know, I've got Pastor and his family and all these people from Venezuela constantly coming to the races and watching him qualify 20th, 21st, 22nd, watching Williams competing for podiums. Oh. And, but that was, that, was pretty, uh, that was pretty dismal. My highlight, without a shadow of a doubt, was Spa 2015. Um, Roman got a podium. Yeah. Um, and I would still argue that in a fairly on dramatic race. So it wasn't as if it was rain affected. It wasn't as if there was anything, I mean, apart from Vettel's tyre exploding on the last, the, the penultimate lap, but it was a fairly normal dry spa. And we, 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 we got a podium. Um, you don't. On a shoestring of a budget. Yeah. Yeah. It must've been a great With bailiffs, with bailiffs in the garage. <laughs> Looming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, they were in the garage. No okay. Were they... Oh, yeah. yeah, so we so there's a weird rule about Spa and Belgium in that if you can convince a judge that you've got a genuine debt owed to you, then you can seize goods. And it happens a lot. in. If you look back in the history books, it happens a lot in Spa that teams like Eddie Jordan's team and, and people like um, that, you'll, you'll see they often get into strife in Spa. So we had <laughs> taken Charles Peake. I, did a, I signed a deal with Charles Peake to be our third driver. Again, the start of 2014, genius deal. And he paid a chunk of money to be our third driver. And he paid a chunk of money to have 10 uh, FP1 sessions. So I told the two drivers this, and they went apoplectic. So Pastor literally just stomped his feet and said, you can't, it's in my contract. So I go back and look at his contract, which I hadn't signed. And it was in his contract that he, he had to do all the practice sessions. Roman basically said, look, um, and again, I'll, I'll speak candidly on here, but Pastor to, um, Roman turned around and said, look, you know, I'm the one that sets the car up. You know, if it's not for me, then we're, you know, we, we could go off in any sort of direction because I love Pastor to pieces, but, you know, he, if he suddenly went two tenths quicker, was that because we'd done some changes on the car or was it just because Pastor had not messed up a corner or that Pastor had, you know, he'd just done something different and he didn't know either. So it wasn't as if he could come in and give you a real, like... So Roman basically said, look, you know, we're, we're going to compromise the setup of the car if I don't do the, the FP1s. Um, but I'd taken this money from Charles. And as the season progressed, it got, things got worse and worse. You know, obviously the nose wasn't working as we talked about just now and um, the engine was terrible. So I... Long story short, I didn't give Charles all 10 that he paid for. We just, we just couldn't do it. There were some races where we needed to have Roman in. So Charles um, is from a very wealthy family. And um, they seized on the, uh, the Spa-Belgium ruling. And that weekend, we had bailiffs in the garage uh, making sure that we didn't... So the third-place trophy sat in Spa in the garage for about a week 
until we resolved our issues with Charles and then got all our got all our stuff out. I'm loving this. <laughs> this there's got to be a book in here somewhere surely there's this turbulent time um it's, just, with, it's like, the politics of f1 isn't it it's, it's brilliant there's so many <laughs> so many questions the, the, i mean there's so many that honestly there's there, there is definitely a book in here somewhere but there's so many stories so the engine moving from renault mercedes i mean that is a that's a that's yeah. almost a a mini a mini story all of its own yeah. so when i rock up and sit down at my ceo's desk at enstone which was flavio's desk and um Flavio's PA was my PA. So, um, Rosella, and she had some amazing stories and some amazing hookups. She was just, she was incredible. Still is. Um, When I sit down on the corner of my desk is the five-year engine agreement with Renault um, at 20-odd million euros a year to have the the hybrid engine. Um, And it's not been signed. The, The final full copy hasn't been signed by my predecessor. And it's very, very obvious that the Renault engine is terrible, shocking, the worst. So at one of the, and I just, every so often Renault would ring and say, ah, just a formality, but, you know, you haven't, uh, can you just, you know, stick your moniker on the, uh, probably not, they probably said something French, but, um, you know, can you sign sign the deal? And um, I'd say, yeah, 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 I've just not got around to it yet, don't worry. And there's a strong link between Renault and Enstone, obviously. I mean, they own the team, a lot of employees. Um, If you ever go to the factory in Enstone and you go to the, um, the engine factory in Viri, it's the same furniture and the same design, the same, it's, it's very, they're very, very intertwined. Mm. Um, so I don't think that they ever thought there was a possibility that we weren't going to sign that agreement. So in one of the strategy group meetings, I happened to be sitting next to Toto and chatting away to him and McLaren were going to Honda. So there's a rule in F1, again, as I'm sure you know, that the engine suppliers are only supposed to supply four teams. Mm. So at the time, Mercedes was supplying McLaren, Williams, um, themselves, and Force India. Yeah, that's right. Um, So they supply four teams, um, and McLaren were going to Honda. Ron had made this decision that they weren't going to win anything if they weren't a, a manufacturer team, if you like. So Toto says to me, we've got a spare engine going for next season 2015 so I said okay so that's interesting because uh we've not formally concluded our deal with Renault and he said how's that happened and I said it's just one of those things so me and Toto started talking and we and we concocted a an agreement that we that's what we would do we had to keep it all very undercover because the guys had to start designing the 2015 car based around a Mercedes engine so only certain people within Enstone even knew, because there's all different hookup pickup points and there's different engine supports, et cetera, et cetera. Exhaust, it, you know, it, it, it's all very different. So we started off down this route, and um, I remember speaking to the two owners, and they basically said, "Well, what you know, what's what's the what's you know what are the downsides of this?" And I said, "Well, like, honestly, there's not many downsides other than we technically don't have an engine agreement in place." So they said, "Okay, what does that mean?" And I said, "Well." Technically, Renault could not supply us an engine at a, 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 a venue because the way it works, again, the way it works in Formula One is so the engine, you never really come into contact with the engine as a team. So Renault would deliver the engine to the circuit. We deliver the chassis. They'd be put together at the end of the race. They get taken down. The engine goes one direction and the, and the car goes the other. So it's not as if your engines, your four engines come back with you to Enstone. They're, mm. they're very Yeah, separate. you're out of control of it. Exactly. So yeah. I said that you know, there's a... A very very small chance that Renault could really get the hump with with what's going on here, and um, so the two owners again, the, the two owners in classic. I'm painting them in a bit of a bad position, but they basically said, "Well, you know, it's, that's down to you. You know, it's your decision." So I said, "Okay." So I remember we got towards the end of the season, and it became obvious Renault obviously got wind of the fact that it was going to be very obvious. So at the time, Cyril was working for Renault, and so he'd run Caterham badly and then he went to um Renault engine department and ran that badly mm-hmm. and um he, you, you, you two are not, not you, you two are not pals then it's that's the... not fair so <laughs> we get so singapore we're in singapore's a bizarre race anyway because everyone stays on uk time yeah, so weird. you effectively you, you know you're having breakfast at, at six o'clock in the evening or however it works but you're up into the very very late hours of the yeah. of the night so it's like 4 a.m., but for us, it's 6 p.m. or whatever it was. And we're in, everyone's in the bar of the Ritz-Carlton in Singapore. All the teams are pretty much in there. And he comes storming over to me. Literally, we had to be pulled apart. Oh there was someone got in between us to pull us apart because he came like within an inch of my face. 
effing and blinding and telling me that he was going to ruin and who did I think I was? Where's and, Netflix uh, when you need him, eh? This, it's, yeah. I've said this to many, many people <laughs> subsequently. It would have been the best episode yeah. because oh. the Mercedes-Benz lawyer, um, Caroline, was sitting at another table. And he was saying, you can't do this, you can't do this. You know, I've spoken to Toto, he's not going to give you an engine. So, you know, you need to sign this contract because, you know, you're going to have no engine, you're going to ruin this. Who do you think you are? You're going to take a whole team down. This sport is, you know, going on a right rant. And I said, well, Cyril, let's go over there and talk to Caroline because the agreement's signed, it's done. We have a Mercedes engine for next year. And he's like, no, you're lying, you're lying, you're lying. And, uh, yeah, You're lying. <laughs> literally got pulled apart by one of the uh, one of the guys. Wow! And he's known for his his outbursts, really, isn't he? So he's had quite a spat with Christian Horner as well at Red Bull when yeah, they yeah. Uh, parted ways. So then, so then, so I turn the team. So we get Mercedes engines. Everything is obviously much much better. So you know we start to do reasonably well. I think we qualified like fifth and sixth in a couple of races. You know we obviously got the podium in Spa. Things are going well. So finances turned round. Success of the team turned round. The two owners then start talking to people about purchasing and who steps up to buy it. But Renault and who is dealing with the Renault negotiations? Ah, so, so. exactly. <laughs> Oh, goodness me. You literally it's, it's, cannot write this kind of stuff. It's so, it's perfect. <laughs> I, I've got a, a question for you. So, uh, I mean, we could we could talk all night about, um, you know, the stories and, and everything else, but I'm keen to get your opinion on a couple of things. Obviously, you, 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 as you mentioned, you were chatting to Bernie recently. Um, would you take Bernie back over Liberty or do you think Liberty are doing a good job now? Well, I mean, there's two things. A, I'm slightly biased. Um, because I do have a lot of time for Burnham for what he did in the sport, and B, I never worked under Liberty. So Liberty came in. So again, the reason I'm here in Montreal is that we sold the team. So Cyril comes into the negotiations. It's, it's very clear early on that they're bringing their own senior management team in and that Cyril's going to run the team, which is fine. You know, I'd spent two and a half years going to every single race, and when you're running the team the way that I was running it, or running the business, let's say, the way I I was running it. I wanted to be back in the UK for Monday morning to have meetings with all the, the heads of the departments, as I would do in any other business. So I'd often leave the races before they'd finished on Sunday evening. I'd often be gone before the end of the race to get back to the UK. So I was I was toast by the by the time we sold yeah. the team. I was I needed some time off, and um, I was uh, at that time was engaged to a girl that I'd met here in Montreal um, during during the um, the 2015 season. So um, I was having some time off. I was trying to work out what to do. And Bernie called me and he'd met my now wife and he knew she was from Montreal at an event somewhere. And he, he called me and he said, uh, you know, what are you up to? What are you doing? So I said, I'm taking a bit of time off. You know, I'm certainly not going to go and work for Renault. Um, so he said, okay. He said, are you settling in the UK or in Montreal? So I said, well, we're going to settle in the UK. Um, so he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know yet. And uh, at the time, Ron had offered me a job and Stephen Fitzpatrick, the guy who owned Manor, yeah. um, had offered me a job as well. So I was trying to decide what to do. So Bernie said, would you consider relocating to Montreal? Well, I'd love to. I mean, my wife's family are there. I love the city. It's an amazing place. Why? So he said, well, we're having some issues with the guy that runs the race over there, the promoter. Um, you know, he's, again, things that, that Bernie doesn't like. He's And again, this is all very public, that he wasn't paying suppliers and that it was there were some financial issues and he was very publicly talking about how Bernie was shafting him in terms of the race fees going up, but it was a contract that had been signed. So Bernie said, would you consider going to Montreal to, to run the race? So I said, absolutely, I'd love to do it. Nothing in writing with Bernie. <laughs> I got a handshake agreement yeah. with him and I up sticks and moved here. And um, so that would have been 2016, the start of 2016. So I come to the race here as Bernie's guest in June 2016. And he shows me around and he literally says to me, he's pointing at things and saying, that's not right, that's not right, that needs changing, that needs changing. And obviously, when we'd had the initial conversation, he said to me, look, you've been to every race. You know, you know what's right and what's wrong. You know what promoters do right and what they do wrong. I've seen the way that you run the business. I know you can run a business. So the things all, all match together for you to be a perfect person. At the time, I said to him, yeah, okay, I'm, I haven't got the money to, to do this. And he said, well, I'll, you know, it's all, we're going to pay for it all. We just want you to be the face of it. So I come June 2016, walk around the circuit, look at everything. July 2016 at the Italian um, GP is when it's announced that Liberty are buying Bernie out. 
So I all bind CVC out. So I instantly get on the phone to him and I say, how is this going to affect our deal? So he said, no problem. He said, they, uh, his exact words, he said, Liberty don't know anything about Formula One and they're going to keep me on as CEO for three years. So my deal with you stands. So I said, okay, fine. So we continue through the rest of 2016. By this stage, I'm married now. My wife's pregnant. We're settled here in Montreal. We get through to January 2017. Liberty finally signed the check to buy Bernie out. And obviously, as, as, we, as we now know, they sacked him or they moved him to mm. Chairman Emeritus. And I, so again, I get in contact with him and he said, ah, yeah, okay, I'll write them a letter, which I've still got. I'll frame it. It'll be in my bathroom when I, when I move someday. But he writes me a letter saying to Ross Braun, saying, this is Matthew Carter. This is a guy I wanted to run the race in Montreal. Strongly, strongly suggest that you, um, you take a look at this. And I get a response back from Ross basically saying, uh, look, we've got bigger issues than Montreal at the moment. At the time, Silverstone was rocky. Brazil was rocky. Germany was rocky. Um, he just said, you know, Montreal is the least of our worries, so we're going to stick with the status quo. Oh, God. So that's the reason I'm here. Oh, so oh, very long-winded answer to your question. I think that in terms of um, the spectacle of the sport, it is probably better now. I don't know whether that's because of liberty or it's because of the way that the cars and the teams are. Um, I think coronavirus obviously helped them in in terms of them getting their budget cuts, uh, the, the cost caps in, which whilst I've got my own, my own views on that and, and the, the rights and the wrongs of it, the, the way it is structured at the moment is, is basically pointless. But if it is the structure that can lead to a better cost cap, then so be it. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, at Lotus, we were... I dug the figures out the, a, a while ago, but at Lotus, I think, let's, let's say we were 120 turnover and the budget cap's been set at 145. Mm. Um, so we would, we would have been under anyway. But it's been set at 145 and it excludes driver salaries, it excludes logistics, it excludes marketing. And I took pro rata those elements of our budget back in 2015. And if you add them into a... Mercedes budget of let's say 300 million it's still 300 million yeah yeah so if you're 145 and you get Lewis's salary at 40 million you're instantly into you know you're just you're just up to the 200 then you've got the top five executives so that'd be Toto and um uh, and James Allison and those kind of people you know there's there's a few more millions to add in there then you've got logistics back in the day also at, at Lotus we were 17 million a year in logistics and we're nowhere near the size of Mercedes so the fact that Liberty managed to get that through, albeit in a, you know, that's for another discussion, my, my feelings on that. The fact they've done that is good. And I think that that will ultimately, and I think that's probably why Williams managed to sell for the price that they sold for, to be honest. Yeah. Because I think that that's a, that and the signing of the Concord Agreement at the same time, I think mm. is really the reason that the, that the guys jumped into to Williams because it suddenly starts to look like a, a bit less... And I don't think Bernie ever apologised for this. He was very much elitist. It was very much, oh, yeah, yeah. if the small teams fail, then so That's be it. Well, he, yeah. he, he always, I did some work with um, Max Chilton when he was driving at um, what was then Marussia, obviously became Manor, but he, he was very dismissive of them. You know, that I think he once referred to them as the gypsies of the grid. Yeah. Um, sure. You know, he had no time for it. And, and you kind of get it. It was old school way of doing it, but, you know, it, it, it clearly worked. Um, talking of Williams, do, do you know these guys that have that have come in and, and rescued the team? No, no, it came come, came completely out of the blue. I actually, um, I actually got approached by someone who was potentially interested in looking at Williams. So, I reached out to Claire and the people that were selling it to just to get some more details at the start of the process, and it and it didn't come to fruition. But when these guys bought, I did a little, I did a tiny bit of research, tried to have a look, but I can't see any. The only link I can see is that the chief legal officer was once the chief legal officer for Pirelli. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, <laughs> that's it, it, the tenuous link. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's the well, only. L- looking at the state of Formula One now, and, and if if the right opportunity came about, would you ever consider going back it, either as a team principal role or or, or running the, the the business side of of one of the teams? Would you Would you ever consider that again? Um, potentially, but it's very. Again, it's a question I've been asked a lot, and there's only ten team principals, and mm. of those ten, you know, there's probably seven or eight that are set in stone, you know. Uh, I mean, albeit changed recently, but, you know, obviously Claire at Williams or, or mm. the team principal is, is, was Frank, but um, but still that's kind of set in stone. And so to go in in a position that was, you know, a few steps down would be a bit strange. Um, I did go into 
Um, so when I left Lotus, before I came, before I moved here and, and took Bernie up on his non-existent opportunity of running the Grand Prix in Montreal, I went and worked for Ron Dennis for a while. But that was him and he's got um, a tech investment company. Hmm. I went and worked for him, so based at his house. So that was kind of a six-month gig. Um, during which time he and I spoke a lot about, you know, going back into Formula One and, and how it looked. And he kept telling me not to, that, uh, that it, it was not, not the way to go. And then I worked for Stephen Fitzpatrick at Manor for about two and a half weeks hmm. um, before I realized that the team was completely... Uh, was it not? It couldn't be saved. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, didn't need, it, didn't, it didn't need saving. It just needed... That's the best way to word this. It needed a slightly more realistic approach. Oh, in, really? In, in the way that, yeah, and it could have, it could have worked. And that's the reason. I, that's the reason I, I met with him a few times, and I sort of talked to him about what I thought. And and I at the time, so they picked up the Mercedes engine, if you remember, in 2016. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they had a Mercedes engine. They had a Williams gearbox and um, rear suspension. Uh, they had um, they had a couple of really good drivers as well, actually, didn't they? If I remember, Pascal Pascal Verline, yeah. the Mercedes. Yeah, and Ocon, I think, came in as well, didn't he? Ocon uh, came in after after my time, but at the time, oh, right, okay, Pascal yeah, Verline, and they had the Indonesian kid. Oh, um, Harianto. Yes, yes, Rio. Hmm. Um, so they had those two drivers, um, and as I say, Mercedes engine, um, you know, Williams rear end, effectively, and I and I said to Stephen Fitzpatrick, and it it was almost a Haas style approach. It was almost, uh, you know, we could probably do this, but we need to go in very much with our eyes wide open, very much, you know, we only do maybe two updates through the whole of the season. And, you know, we, but, and he said, yes, 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 yes. And then when I got there, I realized that he had designs on being on the, the top step of the podium and, and it was it was never going to happen. Just a bit and, unrealistic, uh, yeah. Yeah, I kind of lasted about two and a half weeks and then and then I left. And then a guy who used to work for me, um, a guy called Thomas Mayer, who used to work at Lotus um, as my COO. He went in and did the CEO job at Manor. And I told him from day one, I, they're not going to finish the season. And, uh, yeah, shame, mm. real shame. Now, listen, uh, conscious of time, I've got a few more quick fire questions for you. First of all, um, who was your best mate in the paddock when you were in F1? Who did you enjoy hanging out with? Oh, crikey. Um, so... It was actually a guy called Federico Gastaldi who was, um, I think his title was deputy team principal at Lotus, but he'd been in Formula One for years and years and years. He was the promoter of the Argentinian Grand Prix, mm-hmm. knew everyone. When I first went to Lotus, he was the guy that... So it is a very glamorous lifestyle, don't get me wrong, but the way I was doing it, I would land at an airport, get off the plane... I'd have hundreds of emails to deal with. I'd be met by Federico and a driver. We'd get in a car, we'd go to a hotel. On the journey to the hotel, he'd tell me what happened in the last couple of days, where we were at, which sponsors were there, et cetera, et cetera. Stay in a hotel room. Up the next morning, Federico and I, in a car, driven by the same driver that drove me, whether I was in Australia or Bahrain or Montreal. We'd go to the track, and as you guys know, you walk in through the paddock and it's exactly the same wherever you are because the team have gone in ahead. So I'd then go into our hospitality, be served coffee by the same waitress, eat the same food, then walk into the garage, which had been made to look exactly the same as the garage anywhere else around the world, go and sit on the pit wall and see 50 metres of racetrack and then do it all in reverse. So it wasn't party, party, party. Yeah. Monaco was the only one where you do let your hair down ever so slightly because of the, the way you have the Friday... Um, break day mm. but so basically I would say it would probably be Federico because he was the one that I spent all the time with and he had such great knowledge and knew all the characters in Formula 1 that he effectively walked me up and down that paddock on the first few times and introduced me to people that you wouldn't necessarily know like the guy who runs Pirelli or you know the guy at the FIA who you know looks after the press conferences yeah. Mattia mm. who's not there anymore but he you know those kind of people that you need to you need to know so I would say him yeah. Um, what do you crap at? <laughs> DIY. Same. <laughs> Any terrible. particularly bad experiences uh, you can recall? I put a shelf up for our son in our son's bedroom when he was a baby. And <laughs> it was supposed to be a, 
Well, they call it a floating shelf oh, from yeah. Ikea. We got a few of those oh, yeah. off the wall. I was getting so annoyed with it and I eventually got it up and my wife came in and tried to put some soft toys on it and I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> Far too heavy. Do not go there. <laughs> no, I'm totally with you on the, uh, the DIY. Like, how much weight can it take? And I was like, no, 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 no. Don't nothing. even breathe on it. Um, what about, let's flip that round. What are you, outside of business, what are you good at? Have you got a hidden talent? Um, no, I don't, don't think so, no. I... Um, I enjoy playing golf, but I'm definitely not good at it. Um, no, I don't. No, nothing, nothing that immediately springs to mind. Okay, mm. so we have three final questions for you, which uh, okay. we, we ask of all of our guests and about who they are, and they all provide quite varied and interesting answers. Harry, do you want to kick off? Yeah, absolutely. So, Matthew, what's got you excited at the moment? <laughs> Formula E. Oh, 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 come on. You've got to divulge that. Are you involved somehow or are you just enjoying the sport? <laughs> uh, potentially um, will be involved. Um, but I, can't, I honestly can't say too much about it. Um, but I just think that um, if, we do, if we get a bit more serious for a minute, I just think the way that the car industry is moving with, with, with everything that's going on and, and the way that manufacturers have to... Um, have to have an element of electric and, and hybrid within their range. It kind of makes sense. I think Alejandro did an amazing and a ballsy deal, you know, at the start there where he signed, you know, he's got a 25-year exclusivity on single-seater, all-electric um, racing. And the fact that he's got that, um, I think, means that Formula One and Formula E at some point are going to have to... You know, no. there, there's not going to be space for both of them. I, no. I, this is my opinion. It's only my opinion. You, no. So again, bear in mind Alejandro had a 25-year agreement. He's into year six now. All the manufacturers are jumping. There's more manufacturers in Formula E than there are in Formula One. Yep. Mercedes are in there now. You know, BMW, Porsche, Jaguar. Um, so, and Liberty, which only happened recently. Liberty, it's a slightly different arm of Liberty, but it is Liberty nonetheless. And now the biggest shareholders in Formula E. So I think all these things lead to the fact that something could well happen. Now, you know, the the quality of the racing, the way that things are set up, you know, there, there's lots of there's lots of downsides to it at the moment. There's lots of things that aren't quite right, but the progression of electric um, electrification and the way that battery technology and range and power are all coming, then I think it's a matter of time before mm. before something mm. happens. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I'm a big advocate of Formula E. I've loved it ever since I first watched it, even though that first season, looking back at it now, you think, good God, how did anyone watch that? But you look at how far it's come in just, as you say, about to enter year six. It, think of what the future holds for it. It's year very seven. exciting. Into, into year seven, aren't we now? What well, we yes. will be. Um, it is an interesting sport. And it's also from a brand perspective, from a sponsorship perspective, you know, everyone wants to be involved with it because it provides that sort of more purpose-driven um, sponsorship um, messaging. Um, second one for you, if not doing what you're doing, and I know you've got various business interests and, and still touch motorsport as well, but what would you be doing? God. <laughs> this is always a tough one for people. Always a tough one. Because the weird thing is, and this, and I really don't want to sound arrogant at all, but from a from a work point of view, I tend to do what I want to do anyway, yeah. and, and always really have done. So it's not as if I I look at, yeah, I'd love to be a great sportsman in something. I don't know, whatever it may be, maybe a professional golfer or a professional mm. soccer player or. I guess it's soccer. I've been in Canada for two oh, <laughs> Um But yeah, something like that. But from a from a work point of view, no, I think um, you know my path has taken very many different turns, and you know I'm in a I'm in a pretty a pretty good place at the moment. I'm pretty happy. Good. Not too pissed off with Bernie, or no, not at all, not at all. Bernie is. Um, it, it, a, it wasn't his fault at all. It was, it was a, it was a strange set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, Bernie did. Um, he did an awful lot to help. There's, there's a lot of other things that happened at the team. You know, there were, there were times when, you know, again, the two owners, and I really don't want to paint them in a bad stripe, but there, was, there were occasions when, you know, payroll was due and I knew that we didn't have the money or it was due to come in a little bit later or whatever. And Bernie always pays, or FOM, always pay the teams on the last working day of the month, like religiously. So our cut of the, of the, of the, of the prize fund was, let's say it was 10 million that we were getting every month. Um, no, it wouldn't have been that. It would have been five because we had sponsorship money on top. So let's say it was 5 million at the end of every month. That effectively covered my, my payroll. And, um, and our payroll was due on the 25th. 
And I'd made a commitment to the staff that, you know, I would do my absolute damnedest to make sure they got their money on time because everyone's got mortgages, everyone's got commitments, whatever. Mm-hmm. So Bernie would pay us on the last working day. I'd have payroll on the 25th. So I went to Bernie a few times and said, can you pay me a few days early? And I remember him pulling me to one side and I said, I've never done this before, but I'm doing it. Wow. And he did it a couple of times. Oh, fair so, play to him. Fair so I've got a lot of time to him. Um, I was talking to him the other day about something completely different. I do... Um, I, I, I still get involved a little bit in, in, in trying to put some sponsorship deals together with Formula One. And, um, and he's, well, obviously, he's got the best Rolodex that you could possibly imagine. And, um, and, he's, and it's a very good name to drop into a... I mean, it's, it, it does have bad connotations, don't get me wrong, sometimes in certain elements, but, but it's certainly a good name to drop mm. into a, to a conversation. Definitely. Um, final question for you then. What are you scared of? What am I scared of? I should have read the notes before on the shouldn't I? I'm prepared to have an answer. It's good to be on the spot. Uh, what am I scared of? Honest, I mean, again, without getting too deep, everything that's happened in the last six months has really made me sort of step back and reflect mm. on... on an, and that's not to say I'm necessarily scared of it, but it does make you... It does humble you a little bit and make you realise, um, you know, that we... Uh, that we spent a lot of time living living life without really paying attention to some of the small things. So I'm not necessarily scared of it, but uh, what am I scared of? I don't know. Spiders. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. No, thank you, Matthew. I think it's been a, it's been really interesting talking to you. Like I said, I think there's a book mm. in there somewhere that needs to come out. Happy to be executive yeah. producer on the film when that comes out. Um, <laughs> Same. It's a, it's it's a fascinating story, and it's nice to hear. Um, we, Harry and I were talking before before we came on with you about how you, with things like Netflix, you do see a little bit about um, team principles, and you get under the skin of you know Gunter Steiner, and you hear him swearing and stuff, but you don't really get to know the individual or hear the stories behind being a team principal. So it's fascinating. I think for people um, to hear that firsthand. So thank you for all of that, and um, and hopefully we'll see you back in a paddock one of these days soon. And um, we must do more of this. But for now, uh, Matthew Carter, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials: Twitter at Motormouth underscore Instagram at Motormouth underscore Official, and on Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV. Create your own social profile and interact with others and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy don't forget to like subscribe and review and until next time you've been listening to the motormouth podcast hi this is craig robinson from ways to win and support for this podcast comes from invesco qqq the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 